One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So, Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Gary, so um, you got vaccinated. Yeah, I'm vaccinated now. I've had it, um, which, was, which is fantastic because I feel like I'm on my way back to playing gigs again. Where'd you get it? Well, I, I wanted to get vaccinated in boots uh, because I've got a fabulous new pair. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> But instead, they uh, insisted on doing it in your arm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I insisted on a stadium, and I, I got—I actually got vaccinated at Lords, believe it or not, uh, which was. Uh, no, not, has there ever been a gig at Lords? There's been one at the Oval. I know the, the Oval, the Hoove, and the Faces. Did, which, right. and that was a charity thing, wasn't it? I think it was. It was for, it was for the Afro or something. Thing. Yeah. Yes, but um, no, I don't think there has been a, a gig at Lords. We've got someone really big on today, haven't we? Which is uh, yeah, very very big one. A man I'm quite who's nervous. really yeah, no, I'm I'm nervous about this one. And he's um, uh, yeah, great philanthropist, someone who's really stepped up absolutely, and and has made hits from the eighties onwards and onwards and onwards. And yeah, if you look up anthem actually in the dictionary, I think there's just a picture of him. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. (laughs) It's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hey, John. Can't hear you. Is it on mute? Got no audio at the moment. Ah, wait, it says ABJ is connecting to audio. Ah, hello. Magic. Fantastic. Jesus. I should have handicapped parking for working (laughs) anything to do with a computer. (laughs) I'm so lame. I'm so sorry. I'm sitting here pressing every goddamn button. We all, we all know. We've seen the, the great and the near great. We've seen them all wrestle with this, John. It's we come out of the analog <laughs> era, right? So, yeah, man, forget it. If, if it's any more than an acoustic guitar and record and play on my cassette player, I'm fucked. <laughs> all right, let me try to make it look a little less bright in here. Where are you? You look great, but you always look great. <laughs> oh my god. 
I'm, uh, I'm, no, I'm just in my office. I turned it around because if I sit at the desk, I think it's too dark. And if I sit here, I think it's too light. I don't know. Does that look okay for you? It's fine, but it's this is only for clips, really. It's you ah. know, it's it's a it's a podcast. It's all you know. yeah. You look amazing. You look like you got one of those filters on that make gives you sort of eyes like. Hat -like. Oh my god! It's because you are drinking already. That, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, no, that York, is that New York? Is that New York? We're seeing there, John. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just in my home in my in my you know little office. Usually, this is too dark of you, but I guess it'll do. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. All right. Thank you so oh, much, man. For, thank you so much for, for joining us. I've been looking forward to it. Thank you both. Thank oh. you both. The, the album is, I mean, we will talk about your new album because it's, it's phenomenal. It's incredibly powerful thank stuff. You. Thank you. I worked, I worked really hard on it. Well, the times lead you to think differently. And when you're thinking differently, you know, of course, you know, the only way to emote uh, is through song. So I took advantage of the moment and, you know, and, and wrote about it because you've always taught you know your songs have always been very very romantic but like a stories of the underdog that's always been your you know you've always punched up which is great but it's but not in such a, a sort of way that's rooted in the harsh reality of where we are i would say true i've always tried to be the the hopeless uh optimist you know i think it was a, a product of where i was brought up and when i was brought up um that that led me to that kind of a, a of a viewpoint as a writer you know we I, I had oftentimes been aware of other surroundings and you know we could write a darker song or a darker record but growing up in in middle class new jersey uh, uh during the john kennedy era of of america led you to be an optimist yeah that's that's i guess that's true but yeah, I mean, let's just talk about America and the way it is right now. I mean, you know, when when you started out in, in the in the 80s, this was a country that seemed unified, unified by an outside enemy, probably. But but never before has, has it been so split down the middle. And, you know, you, you you sing anthems to every man. But on this album, obviously, you're taking a bigger risk because, you, you know, are you worried that some of those guys who who have sung in, you know, at your concerts before, sung their hearts out, are going to go, but maybe I don't politically agree with this anymore? Well, in order to tell the truth, um, you're, you have to put yourself out there and stick your chin out. Um, and if someone comes to the show and doesn't agree at I am just trying to be witness to history and they see it as I'm taking sides and give me this, this, this single finger salute. Um, I'm gonna have to deal with that in the moment. And I'm sure it'll take me out of the moment when you're on the stage trying to sing the song. But in the grand scheme of things at this phase of my career, if I were to, to, to just try to appease an audience, then shame on me. You know, I, I would be really remiss as an artist if I was that full of shit that all I could do is try to appease an audience. I, I would make me sick. I'd rather not make a record. Well, you've also I mean, that's absolutely fine. Because you've also you've literally reached out to your audience to co contribute to your song, you know. Well, in that way, you know, yeah, you know, it was an interesting uh, exercise a year ago um, as I was thinking about this podcast and listening to some of your other stuff and. And then um, thinking about where I was, you know, the last time we were all in a different world, I was there, right? And I was, I was re-recording a song that was going to be on this record for uh, the Invictus Games, 
with we, Prince Harry. Yeah, that's we, yeah. We want to get to that. <laughs> it was cool, but you know what a world we were living in. And and then I came home to to this. So you write a song like "Do What You Can," postpone the record, cancel the tour outright. And when I wrote it, I did realize one thing: no matter who you were and where you were on this big planet. For the first time in my lifetime, I could cite something that we were all yeah. doing together. This is one thing that we all did, no matter where you're from. And so that blew my mind, you know? And so I had written the verse, I had written the, the chorus, it, it was done. And, um, and then I started to, to say, wouldn't this be interesting? To tell you guys the honest to God truth, I sent it to a couple of major, you know, heroes and said, why don't you write a verse and we'll make this We Are the World. And then I finished it before anyone said, you know, yes or no. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? So I said, well, fuck them. Um, you know, so, you, got, you got Bruce Springsteen going, but I got this verse. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. you're out of luck, see? But, you know, the truth was, is, is I had I'd contemplated that. So then I'd finish the song. And then I said, because we had all lived this, this is going to be interesting. I play the chorus, I play the first verse, and I basically tell the internet world, write me a verse. Tell me your story. If I like it enough, I'll sing it back to you. Knowing I had the song finished, it was done, there wasn't going to be any, you know, little Joey in Iowa that says, I wrote that, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear that. So it was already, because <laughs> unfortunately, even good deeds, you know, go punished. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in our, in our craft, as you know, you know. Well, I got goosebumps listening to that, listening yeah. to, you know, the stuff on YouTube where you've got other guys coming in and singing and kids sending in verses. Um, and it, Kids, yeah. I, I, I welled up. You know, you you have as 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 a human created your own place on the American landscape. I mean, you are part of it. You know, you could see it, part of it. from um, from thousands of miles away, and so now to come in and say, but you know, I need to do give something back to you guys as well. I am your voice, but let's let's all let's all be part of this together. I think it 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 needed to be done at a time when America needed healing more than ever. Surely, yeah. And, and the doors were slammed in my face. And the, the negative reaction when what? I said, let's, I went to country radio and I said, now they listen more. Here's a, here's a, somebody would always, I've been asked this question a million times. What's the difference between a European audience and an American audience? I said, the Americans only know the chorus. The Europeans always listen to the verses. They knew what a song was about. They were a much more educated listener by and large outside of america and you were more and, successful in the uk for quite a while weren't you? yeah kind of, that was and the first two perfect. records we were doing we were doing we were doing as well as you know better than america but we weren't big yet um but the idea that 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 i just lost my train of thought uh, about <laughs> europeans knowing the knowing the whole song yeah i knew that part so they know the whole thing God damn, there was a better point. Well, I forgot the original question. Oh my well, God, I got you went to country up. radio. You went to country radio. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. I apologize. No, 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 no. That's why we're here. excited. <laughs> Thank you very much. I went, so because they, the American country audience, listens to stories, yeah. I en enlisted Jennifer Nettles, who had made a song of ours, uh, a number one country single, Who Says You Can't Go Home. And then I said, let's go to country. This is such a unifying theme. Uh, bringing people together. If you can't do what you do, do what you can. Man, I was doing a bunch of phoners and you're on this like uh, 
uh, conference call thing where one after the other DJ is going to pick up and someone made the mistake of sending me the notes that the DJs thought of the song before I got on the phone. And now I'm sitting there reading this and right at the top of the page, it says, don't send this to John. (laughs) But my manager fucked up and sent it to me. And so I saw it. And now I'm sitting there with the country record radio guy saying, I don't want to do these phoners. I can only imagine the heat I'm about to take. I don't want to do it. And he says, you've committed. You got to do it. So now I went on the air and basically tried to convince these 25 country guys to play the record. They all accepted the interview. They were happy to talk to me. And then they hung up and then they didn't play it. Wow. And the record, wow. it's stiff. It's and, stiffed at country. And is it's this stiffed. Because I don't think people fully understand it in the UK, because that cultural division that you, you've had in America about the mask wearing, you know, that never, is that what you're talking about? Because that never existed here. There, there was yeah. elements of it, but it was pretty. It kind of, it, there was a bit of it. It's um, not but, quite but, like in America. Though. No, no, not as bad as in America, but there's, you know, there's, it's the same. It's the same. It's, it's the, the equivalent cultural commentators. The same thing. Yeah. It's the people on the right. It's, it's the, the anti-vaccine, anti-mask that, you know, they, there'll be the people who voted the same way for the sure, over sure. There and uh, over here. Yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, and I agree with that. But uh, uh, Donald Trump really made a thing out of the mask. He couldn't have kings and queens uh, come into his office while he was wearing a mask. And he says, you know, and he's such a wise guy. He was like, I don't look good in a mask. And, and you know, so that became really politicized. And I believe for no reason, yeah. um, but nonetheless, and that was, yes, the, the country radio guy said, I don't want to talk about COVID. I don't want to talk about uh, a mask. I, I, I hate this subject matter. And, uh, and it was a shame because I was trying to find radio that was interested in Bob Dylan singing the protest song and Woody Guthrie yeah. singing this land yeah. is your land and Sam Cooke singing change is going to come. I was looking for something to bring people together. And it was, me- you can't do what you do, just do what you can. My God, that's not political. Yeah. And, that- and did, that, did that come from this photo? It was from yeah. you actually doing yeah. something Dishes. in your own yeah. kitchen, which is great. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that, your soul foundation and your soul kitchen. I mean, that that's an extraordinary thing in itself. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, John? Sure. Um, some 15, 16 years ago, I started a foundation around what was a, a sports team. I owned a little sports team. And uh, and years later, my wife, Dorothea, said in the in economic downturn of America in 2008, she says, all those houses you built, there's a lot of people now who are hungry and we can no longer build houses. Uh, why don't we do this? And she created the concept of the Soul Kitchen, which is empowering people who are both in need and want to affect change directly. So if you guys were to visit a Soul Kitchen, you would think of it as a beautiful bistro. You sit down, there's a waiter, there's a menu, there's a three-course meal served to you. There's no soda popper or, or French fries. Um, but if you're in need, you, you volunteer for your time for your meal which i'll give you a certificate to not only feed yourself but your entire family bring them back next time volunteer for one hour which is really 20 minutes you know fold napkins work in the garden wash a dish and if you guys were to come and affect change directly leave 20 dollars on the table it pays for your meal and the meal of somebody who is in need and the model now is 50 50 so the support of the community who want to directly affect and those who are in need 
are, are hand in hand and it's helping us come to like almost a, a zero sum, you know, where we, we can cover the nut annually. And so I was there because we rely on a volunteer to make the world go round. COVID comes, shuts it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless I wash the dish, the dish couldn't be washed because we couldn't have anyone volunteer. And Dorothea took a picture to put up on social media that those who are in need can still come. I think all she was asking me was the day of the week and the time of the day that we would be open. But, you know, the songwriter blurts out, if you can't do it, you do, you do it, you can't. The next day I went, oh, there's a chorus. And I went to my room and I wrote the song. Yeah. And there we were. Incredible. And also, you, 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 there's a song on the album about George Floyd as well and the Black Lives Matter movement as well. I mean, that's an a, a even riskier area. To, to be delving into. That, uh, my next line in that is incredible. Whoa. whoa. It was a photograph on the news. Uh, there was a young African-American kid, couldn't have been but 10 or 12 years old. And he had a, a, a sandwich board on, you know, remember how you see people in front of this store. And it should literally said, am I next? And I'm welled up with tears watching that news report right after Mr. Floyd is, is killed. There was a, basketball player professional basketball player whose name is now escaping me and he's on the news talking about his friend george and he's talking about his kid and and he's saying what a good man he was blah 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 and maybe it was because we were all in lockdown maybe it was because the television news was on 24 7 but unlike even ahmaud arbery who had just been killed prior or what became brianna taylor or all the subsequent ones that had that had happened this one hit me in the, it right between the eyes. And again, I went in my room, I shut the door and I worked very hard to write the song. The first incarnation was the verses. And again, my wife being the, the one in the house, she said, great verse, chorus needs work. And so I kept chipping away at it, kept chipping away, playing each iteration for my kids to the point then where now I was aware you're risking a lot because you know I'm going out on a limb because you know, I could be the poster boy for white privilege. I'm an older, white, affluent male who compounds it by even being a celebrity. So the chances of me getting pulled over by a cop, you know, I, I, chances are I'm going to, you know, unless I've done something really heinously wrong, I could talk my way out of a ticket. Chances are I'm not going to get arrested, you know? And so I had to be real careful and I played it for, not a lot of people, but, you know, considering COVID, I played it for a number of people, um, both in the, in the African-American community and elders and songwriters and wanted to make sure I got it right. Again, not afraid to do it, uh, wouldn't pander, but once I got it where I thought it was right, I took a chance of catching the cold and I got on a plane to California I asked Tico to join me there and Hugh, the bass player. And then even there, Tico, who's not one to pay attention to lyrics, he <laughs> said, you, you're saying I can't breathe. That was the title of the song. He goes, you can't say that three times. He goes, you can't say that. And one of the lines in the song, it was just in the last verse, was American Reckoning. And I said, okay, I, I can go there. That's an easy fix. And then American Reckoning was a way better title. Yeah, yeah but and it, I, I swear to Christ, 40 years later, Tico goes, what's that song? And it goes, boom, 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 boom. I'm like, <laughs> He paints, doesn't he, Tico? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a true Renaissance man, that one. Yeah. Renaissance man and drummer, not things you hear 
together yeah. often. Yeah, <laughs> you, right. Do you, um, do you think not, uh, without wanting to touch on things that might be sensitive, do you think not having Richie around helps you as a writer to be more personal on this album? And, ah, uh, in your good work? question. Really good question. Yeah, I think that that is that has been uh, somewhat true, especially because of the subject matter that the world dealt us. So I couldn't have written This House Is Not For Sale and used that imagery as a song because I wouldn't have been writing that song if the band were whole. I, I wouldn't have been in that place emotionally and then ultimately physically in the toll it took on me uh, had I not gone through that hell. Um, so now that I'm clearly, finally through that, I was able to write differently and I'm grateful for it because these last seven going on eight years, they weren't good. You know, it, it was a, it was a mm -hmm. fight for me physically and emotionally and, you know, everything that's, that's, that's threatened to be taken away from you. And it wasn't of your own doing. It was, it, it was tough. You know, but he had issues that, you know, he just couldn't deal with under the umbrella of the band. And it was heartbreaking. Even though the band is called Bon Jovi or, you know, it, and, and, and I think, by the way, I, I think that's a, a piece of brilliance because everybody knows, everybody pretends that are in bands that they're a complete democracy, but everyone knows they're never really democratic bands. There's, there's always some guys, you know, and I think that took the pressure off the others. It was called Bon Jovi. It was your band, but it was, they were also in it. But you were a gang, most certainly were a gang. Oh, yeah. And I think it, mm. and, you know, the four of you in particular, losing Richie must be, must have been pretty tough for you. It's my right hand, you know, it's, it's Bruce losing Clarence, it's Mick losing Keith, it's, mm -hmm. you know, but, 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 but even the God blessed Beatle Paul went on, Yeah, you know, and, yeah, and yeah, I've yeah. spoken to him about it and I've spoken to Bruce about it. And I tell you, you know, I don't have many, many regrets in this business or in life, but if I could have an opportunity to sit down with Jagger and talk to him about his experience with Keith, <laughs> I, I would embrace that. You know, <laughs> I would really have embraced that opportunity. It's you know, and it's I, interesting. Yeah, a, a few weeks ago we spoke to Johnny Marr, right? Who and um, and who everyone thinks, oh, the Smiths. Why can't the Smiths get back to blah blah blah? And Johnny made this great point. You know, Johnny said, you know what? I didn't want to be Keith. I didn't want to be Pete. I didn't want to be that guy who's just in one band for 30, 40 years. And it's, you know, I, I wanted, I had this band, which then enabled me to go and play with a million different people, which is what I wanted, which, it, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be that. No, and I have said publicly for all these years, the truth is, is that being in a rock band is not a life sentence. That is true. But I... I'm not a big fan of change. I like yeah. progress. And I always, in, in, in the case of our band, I really did encourage all to do their individual things because it allowed for all of us to bring more information back to the table. One of the many things I learned in our youth and when, when the enormous success of records like Slippery and Wet in New Jersey and even Blaze of Glory, um, if you're in that cocoon and all you know are each other, there's eventually going to be some animos and you don't even yeah. know why you just don't know why you're just sort of caught up in that hamster wheel and you're running and, you know, in retrospect managers and agents were just trying to do their job. But in the meantime, you're burned out on it. And, you know, these things happen. You, it only comes with time and, and experience that you could look back on those things. But I always encouraged my guys 
to go and do whether it was a solo record or in, mm -hmm. in Dave's case now, David has become such an accomplished playwright. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And his first play won four Tonys and he was in previews to do a play on Diana, on Princess Di, that rumor has it, it's going to be a monster. And so I always encouraged. He sends his love, by the way, because I texted David just, just before we got to speak oh. to him because I'm a friend of his. And, uh, oh, and and he's very excited because his because his musical's going on Netflix and you know yeah yeah uh, hoping yeah. that's announced and uh, he, he sends yeah, yeah. Love, he sends his love lol <laughs> <laughs> yeah like he was saying to me you know I mean, all we do is text I haven't seen him even when we did promotion for the band he was committed to something with Diana and I just I get it go and do that this is the only window we can film this thing with the band the substitute is not the guy in the band. We practically hung a sign over the guy that did the TV show just to let the world know that the keyword player is not the guy in the band. But I encourage Chico to paint and golf and do, you know, and mm -hmm. because then then it gives everybody their freedom. That's that like both of you guys have taken up acting. I loved the period when <laughs> I was making movies. I loved it. I hated the struggle. I hated sitting in the folding chair. I hated begging for the role. But in the big picture. <laughs> yeah, but I remember reading an interview at the time when you were doing something and, and you, you developed a fondness for Wandsworth, I remember. Yeah, because just to say <laughs> Wandsworth. <laughs> yeah, <Exactly>. Wandsworth. <laughs> <laughs> what that? that uh, the Leading Man. It was an English independent film that, right. uh, that was about a, a playwright in the West End. And, and it was like a little like all about Eve. And the, I was, you know, the male character instead of a female. Uh, and, and taking over the playwright's wife and the manipulation of it all. And a guy named John Digan was the director. And it was oh, the yeah, yeah, grandest. Yeah, yeah. Loved it. And, and uh, three or four months in England and, and making that film. And, and then I studied, you know, so studying the craft just gives you more information to write about. I think it's the thing is about uh, when musicians become actors, singers become actors, is the thing you you the, you slightly struggle with that is is it's always other people's words, you know, and you become just interpretive, where you know there's nothing. It's hard to find what you can put into yourself. But in saying that, I think your skill as an actor, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, John, but your skill as an actor is what helps you deliver music so brilliantly on stage in the live format. Hey, you know, oh, thank a song you. like thank a song you. like when you do. To, um, uh, hallelujah. I mean, you act your way through every single word of that. Uh, I also uh, believe that I understand what the song was about. Smoke. I am blowing smoke. Oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah. It's you who understands what the song's about. It's, isn't I that wonder who amazing? that guy was. Yeah. You know, when you, to me, when, look, I'm not, I could debate this one all day long, but I clearly think it's about fucking. You know, and, and when I'm telling you that it's about when I hear it sung in church and I see cartoon characters singing it, I wholeheartedly disagree. Remember when I moved in you, the yep. holy dove was moving to with every breath through Jew, the hallelujah. What the heck do you think it's about? Look at who wrote it. You know, <laughs> I don't know. If Freud would agree with you, I'm sure. No, I'm I'm, I'm in. It's one of those things. It's like. Um, you know, you know, there's when you have a Dylan song sometimes and it makes no sense. And you and someone says, Dylan, what's that about? And he goes, well, it's my hometown. You go, oh, my God, of course. And this yeah. is like that. Now you've said that you've literally just unlocked the whole puzzle. I, I thought that I understood <laughs> that from day one. But when you 
are such a fan of Cohen as I was. And you did your, you know, you knew the background and how he was writing and, and in Greece and, and he loved all these young girls and, yep. and everything about the guy was that. And, and, uh, and I just think I understood what the song was. And I've been blessed enough to have sung it enough times to see how it worked. Polly Sampson has written this brilliant book called The Theatre for Dreamers, which is set in Hydra in 1960. And it's around the ah. whole Leonard Cohen scene. And it's, it's fantastic. I think you'd love it. She's David Gilmore. Yeah, David. She, she writes all the lyrics for David as well. Tell me the name of the book again. It's called Theatre for Dreamers. Okay, there you go. That gives me something to do. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Have you ever done theatre, John? No, uh, I, I never had the opportunity in, in and of the moment. Um, my reaction to it was that I understood what an audience was. I, I, didn't, I didn't need that interplay on a daily basis. I was really pursuing film. Uh, and that whole medium was so foreign to me because even in my studies, I, it was always private. And I was with a guy who used to like smoke a cigar and you're practicing a love scene and he's blowing cigar smoke in your face. You go, that's acting. So when I went to my first role in my first <laughs> movie and they said, we're going to do take two, take three, take four. I went over to the director and I whispered, I'll pay for the film. I'm sorry that you're doing so many takes. 
He says, what are you, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the, the thing for us, because I, because I've done comedy, I've done stand up, but that's actually a lot closer to what we do because I think what's d- difficult for us, for musical performers to make the transition to theatre is the fact that you can't interact with the audience. Right, right, you know, we right, can't, we right, literally have right. To, which is why theatre can work with social distancing and we can't, we, you know, it's, yeah. right. So, right, right, yeah, right, right. One of one of your big records always. I think you you didn't that get wasn't that um, um, written originally for Romeo's Bleeding as well. You, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I, which I, I have a small. I, I know that wasn't uh, your favorite movie. I don't think it ended up on the movie yet. But I actually knew that I worked with the director Peter Medak uh, on on a film here called The Craze, and uh, and I just remember when that when that when that song came out and you know, it was oh, yeah, yeah. the film. I enjoyed the film actually, but you saved it and you put it out. I think it's the biggest record you ever made, wasn't it? Uh, I, I, next to living on a prayer and that kind of thing, but always was a monster. And you know, read the lyrics. It is, it is the screenplay. This Romeo is bleeding. You can't see his blood. Right. Uh, it, that, that, that was the film. And it was a very much uh, in and of the moment. I mean, I think you, you, you could have used it, Gary, in the, in the in the production value of the way that Spandau is truly, it was a synth-based. Yeah, yeah. There was no big guitars on it. It was a much more melancholy uh, interpretation of it. And and then I just didn't care for the film, and I and I didn't care for the way the song turned out. So it sat on a shelf, and an A and R guy from another label heard it in my studio. And we just went in with Peter Collins and redid it as a as a big rock song. Um, so you know, you never know what's on the shelf. But yeah, I want to just go back to that thing you were talking about about you know the band and the gang and all of that. And something that uh, you know I noticed in the documentary film you made a few years ago about when you were on tour is is, is the sense of family that you like to create in your organization. You know, you have this beautiful moment when you uh, you hand out medallions to people who have been in your team for a long time and and there's the real sense and i think it might be the italian (laughs) in you but that that sense of family that that, and loyalty to the family that you uh, aspire to at the time i was also aware of it and that was because of elvis if you remember the little lightning bolt tcb taking care of business um and it was at the height of slippery when wet and so I made these little gifts for our absolute innermost circle of the crew. And, uh, and they caught on because this little nothing, you know, this predates rap and guys with big bling and all. I mean, it's, it's not much bigger than a thumbnail. You know, it's teeny and it's, it's not expensive. And I gave these 13 of them out. They were treasured. They were treasured. And, and then the next tour, I, I gave a couple of more. And then I say, if you do two world tours and you do the entire world tour, then you could qualify for one. And I know, you know, that mine, I buried with the guy that put a guitar in my hand the first time. Um, you know, I know, I only know of one of a guy that sold his. Um, a rat. You know, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, one, we, yeah. no one's heard from him. Apparently he's in witness protection, but no one's no one's heard nothing about him for a while. Yeah, for a while. <laughs> hey, he must one guy tough. ever. <laughs> but no no one ever, you know, they, they meant a lot to everybody. And so I, I guess there's about 120 of them maybe over this 35 years. 
but yeah, that's still it's still a thing in our organization. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what, John? Sorry, jumping off, and I, this is almost like another interview. But the one thing I would really love to hear about from you is when you started. Because funnily enough, I spoke to Tim Pierce yesterday, the legendary oh, session guitarist. My God! Who, yeah, who, sure. who, who, who about a project we did years ago, a thing called Toy Matinee. But he yeah. uh, and, and he played on Runaway on the demo of Runaway, I believe. But because what I because um, I mentioned I was going to be speaking to you because what I want to know is when you started out, you were kind of sweeping up and stuff. At the power station, right? Correct. But yeah. this is in the absolute glory days of the power station. Yes. I mean, that must have been amazing. I mean, what was, you know, the stuff that was going, this is like, let's dance period, isn't it? Or before, yes. that was, you know, come yes. on, man, come on. Yes. So I didn't even know the second cousin, Tony Bon Jovi. He had produced the first Ramones record, the first... Talking Heads record oh, with, a guy, with a guy named Lance Quinn, who was his production partner. And he, this guy, Tony, and a guy named Bob Walters came from a place called Media Sound, build this place called the Power Station. But I don't know this man. I'm playing in bars. I'm, you know, just in my own original. I'm, I'm the singer in someone else's original band and graduating high school. And my dad calls his cousin and says, would you come to this bar and see my kid? Because he's hell bent on just, this is it for him. And let me know if, if, if he's wasting his time. And the guy came and he says, the band stinks, but the kid's got something special. You know, good luck. <laughs> the band stinks, but the kid's yeah, got something. Yeah, bad thing. Yeah. He, goes, <laughs> he was honest. And, you know, the band did break up shortly thereafter. And and in September of that year, um, keeping an original band together was was very hard. The way to make money playing music was playing covers. Yeah. So having an original band, there was no money in it. Um, but I realized even in 1980, just out of high school, I quit my own cover band and said, unless you go and write your own stuff, there's no future in this. And so... There was there was two things that were happening in New Jersey time. Cover bands making three thousand dollars a night forty years ago, and original bands making one hundred dollars a night <laughs> to split. Yeah, I chose to do that because I saw what the future was. And so, anyhow, getting back to my opportunity to go to the power station, um, I called the guy in September of nineteen eighty, getting out of high school, and I says, "Can I do anything? Can I just do something?" He says, sure, you come to New York, come over to the studio. And then they eventually paid me 50 bucks a week to be the gopher. And then if it was a weekend or late, late, late night, I could go in and they would just keep a tally and said, basically, if you ever make it, you got to pay us back. <laughs> so It was basically like a spec deal. And, uh, and so, you know, I did, I did pay them. Uh, he got to co-produce the first album and, and Sayonara. Well, who did you um, stay around but, the studio? Any let, let me tell you what yeah. I saw because yes, no yes, one yes, 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 yes. believes what I saw. <laughs> I witnessed Bowie and Freddie singing the vocals to Under Pressure. Oh, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It was, I looked right through the window of Studio A and I reconfirmed this to another cousin of mine it's the Italian thing again, yeah. who was uh, also working in the studio. I said, weren't we there then? He says, yeah. 
So go and look at that vocal credit. The vocal was done at the power station. Oh, well, yeah, because we always thought because the recording was done in Mont in Switzerland, wasn't it? But not the vocal. Ah. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, 41 I, I, years. I don't later, think there are other people that look like Freddie and Bowie singing at the same time. Yeah, well, yeah, well, the, what the, the sparks, maybe. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the sparks, exactly. <laughs> But Niall and Bernard and Tony, she oh. was always, they were in B every day, every day. Oh. And he was the, they were the nicest, sweetest guy. Yeah. I, I, I was shortly after John Lennon was killed and I had a band and we were rehearsing a few blocks away. And I'll, I'll never forget this, getting out of a cab, counting out my change to pay the cabbie. So we're sort of tucked in and the stones got out of whatever car it was they were getting out of the stones. At the same time, going into the studio and a photographer jumps out of a trash bin and paparazzi starts taking pictures. Jack in a box. I swear to God, this is true. Jack in the box. The Stones, they open up the door of the studio. Wyman, uh, whoever else was there, it was Mick and Keith. They, they go in to the studio. I finish counting the change. We jack up my little you know teenage friends jack the, the 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 photographer and shoo him away because i can go in the studio the photographer screaming mick 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 give us a picture i swear to you he grabs me and these kids and he says here's my new band the frogs and we took a fucking picture <laughs> have you ever seen it is it is it ever been published no because i thought i thought the photographer was ron galella i don't know who the photographer was i thought it was Ron Galella because that picture exists of me at 18. Have you, have me you, have you mentioned this? Have you mentioned this before? Uh, yeah, I, I have uh, to make that, you know, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know Mick Jagger. I don't know him, but true story. Uh, but I'm telling you, Bruce had just finished the river uh, oh, and little <laughs> Steven was making one of his solo albums and I got to do hand claps on it. And, uh, I mean, it was Devo coming through the ceiling because where we'd sleep upstairs in the apartment, you know, you'd hear the sounds reverberating from Studio C yeah. at the time. Um, you know, so the crazy things of, of the people and the greatest lesson I learned there was the bigger the star, the nicer the person. It was the guy that um, you don't hear about today who was not cool. Yeah. Who, you know, the, the, the stones were cool. Believe like the fucking Rolling yeah, Stones yeah. are like, hey kid, how's those demos going? You know, or or even though I had met Bruce back on the the shore, um, they were always kind. You know, they were always incredibly kind because they knew me from down on the shore. Uh, Bernard and and Niall and those guys yeah, could yeah. not have been more gracious, uh, <laughs> knowing that you were a kid. I just, I'd love to see that movie. You know, from the kids' eyes. You know, it's just yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, wonderful. You you, you um. You obviously, Bruce was obviously an inspiration in, it must've been in your early days, but is there a sound that comes out of New Jersey? What, what is it for both of you that, that you've all grown up on around there? He was the, the godfather of it all. I mean, without, without Bruce's um, success, nobody would have paid attention to the shore. But then, because I'm the next generation, I'm, I'm 11 or 12 years younger. Uh, the E Street Band were my Beatles. Yeah. You know, they, right. they truly were. And so many other bands that were trying to jump on those coattails 
That's right. Truly South emulated side. that. Yeah, because there, there, there was very much a sound. We did Southside Johnny and all that, wasn't there? There was very much a, and it was. And, uh, and, and much lesser bands. At least John yeah. knew that, you know, Bruce and Stephen were literally writing his songs. Um, Nils but, Lofgren was also, he had a great solo album out as well. That's sim a similar sound, Nils yeah. Lofgren. Well, you know, well, maybe, but I, I, I'm talking like Beaver Brown Band. I'm talking about uh, D.L. Byron, uh, uh, Donnie Iris, uh, Little Reese, Michael Stanley. The things oh, yeah, that, you know, yeah. the early, you know, that all came around and were playing in the bar. And you'd see it and you'd see, you know, this band show up and they happen to have a African-American sax player also, you know, right, right. and you go, oh, <laughs> Aren't you trying to emulate something that's not yours? There was a band, and I won't give it away, but there was a band once that was doing a radio broadcast, which was huge. You're on New York City, live, on the radio, from the bottom line. And Scott Munier, one of the DJs, is on, and he's going, yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is blah, 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 the band, blah, blah, blah. I want you to know this is not, this is not Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band. Please don't <laughs> come here and think they're playing. Yeah, and you, you... Even as a little boy, as much as I loved them all, the one thing I knew was if you didn't become your own man, uh, it would be short lived. So, you what was your, your niche? Yeah. What? So, what was your template, John? What would what made you know? Because you... if that was the storytelling and the performer, that would be the foundation. I would say that those two things came from from the E Street Band and from Southside for sure. They were killer performers and storytellers. Then if, if it was the singing, cause I wouldn't, I think that those two guys are stylists and I've worked hard to be a better technical singer. There wow. would be guys like Steve Perry from Journey. Oops. And then there was the eighties the rock band thing of Van Halen that when that band, you know, the original band broke up in 1984, that was a good thing for the creation of Bon Jovi. You had the good looking uh. kid singer who could really sing. And by the way, was a hell of a performer who knew how to tell you a story, you know? So this was something different. And when we got lumped into that LA, you know, bands of my era and my ilk, I wasn't comfortable. You know, we said, wait, that's not who we are. And we, yeah, when well. we went, we, we, it was not who I was, you know, we, we knew what, my, the first date I took my wife on was Sam and Dave, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't listening to, to, you know, heavy metal in the parking lot. It wasn't my thing. So all those little things, the storyteller, the lyricist, the performer, but a better singer and the cute thing. And that all, that all paid dividends. You've, you've been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame as well, and songwriting is what you do. But obviously those first two big hits, you know, Living on a Prayer, you know, there was a another songwriter brought in to work with you. I've forgotten his name now. Um, Desmond, Desmond Child. Desmond Child, yeah. And obviously they were utter smashes, you know. Did that leave you feeling a little bit shaky about how you could take this off on your own? Well, it was a little bit the opposite. So Richie and I had written, you know, I had written Runaway before there was a band and there was, there was no, there was no band. And then the second record we're trying again. And David and I co-wrote the first single on that record. And then I wrote the subsequent second and third one. The third record, what we had witnessed from afar in our frustration was that Brian Adams, and this was the example, 
was writing songs for other people. And it was Tina Turner at the time. And I, and he was getting these videos with her and playing on bigger stages. And I sort of saw myself in that kind of, well, why aren't we getting those shots? And why are we getting lumped in with Rat and Motley Crue and this and that when that's not who we are? You know, I, I want to go home. And um, so we initially, and, and, and this is the tr truth, said, well, if we could write songs for other people, and I didn't know how. I didn't know how you, you did that. And a record company guy, a guy named Derek Schulman. Um, oh my God, from Gentle Giant. Yeah, yeah, he was my A and R guy. Who would have thought prog rock Gentle Giant from yeah. Scotland? I've got anything to do with we, that movie. We always, we always get a prog link, no matter who there we speak go. to. We always get a prog link. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Derek was the one that told me how you go about it with publishers and recommended this guy. And I knew Desmond had a couple of albums because the poster for what was Desmond Child in Rouge um, hung outside the dressing room, the original bar band in Asbury Park. So I was aware of the name. And so I said, great, let's meet the guy. And so, you know, by happenstance, we got together and wrote these incredible songs. And we said, oh, I think we should keep them. That was the bottom line. And yeah. so, you know, Prayer and Bad Name uh, were two of them. But none of us had had any major success you know i had two gold albums desmond had one top 10 single his own albums didn't do well but he he was obviously a very talented uh guy and uh and the three of us together same thing with bruce fairburn who produced that third album he he was in a band called prism he had his oh, yeah, biggest yeah. thing was a band called lover boy um yeah. they didn't you know he he was fledgling as a, pro a producer there was a young engineer by the name of bob rock there was a city called Vancouver that nobody had made records in, you know, for real, other than the people from Vancouver. Um, and all of these people came together and this magic called Slippery When Wet. And then Little Mountain Studios became the next generation's power station. That's right. Yeah, it was the absolute everybody. Too, yeah. What was that like, though, John, just just writing that first song with Desmond? And uh, I mean, do, I do, you, know. do you remember it? Um, the first one, because there was a song that didn't make it and we want and we gave to a movie. Uh, it was called On the Edge of a Broken Heart. And it was for a movie that we gave him called The Fat Boys, I think. And then um, <laughs> subsequently Bad Name came. And then ultimately Prayer came. And then we had like Dead Alive and, and Never Say Goodbye and some other ones that Richie and I had finished. Um, we thought we had a, a, a really good record. But at the time, and you're gauging this against the radio, it was like if we could have something as anthemic as Power Station... And Robert Palmer had that big hit that year, Addicted to Love. Yeah, I, I played on that album. Have... He played on the album. Did, did yeah. you play on that song? I, no, not on that. No, that was Bernard, um, who actually hired me to play on the album. I'm just saying. There you go. Was 21. So right. Wow. <laughs> so they, the power station and the band, the studio, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So we're thinking, like, if we can have a song that's like that, then I started thinking about anthems that work in an audience, having done a whole lot of touring by this time. Then you start thinking about how that to and fro and how you're doing a cover song at night to win an audience over, especially as a support act. And I'm like, I need a song like that. And it was Joan Jett's hit of I Love Rock and Roll. I need these things called anthems. I need this. And so we started thinking like that. And then we started writing differently.
you know, my, my brother, uh, who, who actually, you know, played in uh, Spandau Ballet as well, he uh, he does a sort of 80s DJ thing that he, when the clubs are open, when we were all before pre-COVID, he goes around, he plays a bunch of 80s songs on stage to a, a couple of thousand people at a time. And um, the, the it's all 80s, but the final song is always Living on a Prayer. That's the one, yeah. and everybody out there sings every single word. Mm. And it's become something bigger than the song you, you three guys sat and wrote. Absolutely. It came from nowhere. None of us had an idea the day we walked in a room. We came out with it finished. And I swear I told Richie, eh, it's okay. But also in, in defense of that dumb statement, when he told me I was crazy and he was right, um, there was no baseline. You oh, know, do you know what was, I, was, I was actually about to bring up, uh, by the way? That's the one that and was the bass like, player a, has to get as a bass player. It's a brilliant, <laughs> it's a the bass on that song is fantastic. Yes, it is. It's yes, really, it is. really great. Yes, it is. <laughs> and yes, it is. Yeah. Phenomenal bit of bass playing. And Huey McDonald. Is, yeah. Hugh, Hugh McDonald came up with that bass line. Uh, he was absolutely genius. We worked very hard on that. You know, it was like, we need something that's more Motown. We need something that's more Motown. And then we got, got that round and it worked over all three chords. Because if you think about it, it's E minor, C and D. There's not a lot musically to it. You know, it's Tommy used to work on the docks. This could be London going to strike. He's down <laughs> on his luck. It's tough. So tough. Right? So until that's how we wrote it. But again, that was. I need a story. That was my input. You know, everybody had something. I want a story. This is what we're going to write about. And, and everybody had their thing and we created the magic. And in the pre-production room, when Fairburn came down and we were in a demo studio, the bass line was developed. And then ultimately I was dumb and young and agreed to, I didn't come up with, that was a Desmond thing, the goddamn key change. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Musical theater moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Embrace your inner son time. At 25, that's one thing. At 59, it's a whole nother symbol. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very lucky it's a call and response song, you know, because oh, they, you yeah. could just let the audience sing that high bit. <laughs> um, uh, talk, talk in a plane line. Listen, I know your time's precious, and we just, I, we're very grateful to have you here. But, um, you know, I'm, you, have probably played to more people than any other band in the world. I mean, you you absolutely love touring. I mean, you played to millions and millions. You know, this must be the weirdest time for you, not being out there, not being able to go on the road. Is this possibly the longest time you've ever been at home? No, not really, not really. And and in truth, in these latter years, uh, we've gone out less and less. The last tour that was over 100 shows was in thirteen. Uh, and I and I don't think I'll ever do a hundred show tour again. And and in the heyday, yeah, in the heyday, we would do 200, 240 shows with the peak. Uh, that's too much. Even if you're young and you have nowhere else to go, it's too much. Nowadays, I, I don't see that. Because I saw you play an incredibly, I was for certainly for us English kids, this play, um, a very very important cultural landmark gig for us. And it's amazing you got to do it. Which is, I saw you close Wembley Stadium. Oh yeah, that was big to us too. Yeah. yeah, we closed Wembley and then we sold the tickets to open it. There was two nights sold out to open it. That was the deal. I think it was three nights to close it and we were doing two nights to open it. And I went on the train to outside of it and the arch was up 
And they said, oh, we think it'd be a good photograph if you went and took some pictures and we put the two shows on sale. I was very excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, I take the pictures. I should have gone inside because it wasn't built. And so they relocated, <laughs> they relocated the two shows out into Milton Keynes. Oh, yeah. Oh, which, yeah, you know, yeah. used to be a lot of fun, but you know, it's not Wembley Stadium. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was mad at them for a hundred years from the time it opened until this past summer. And and then we finally went back and played the new one. But uh, what's the Wembley, plan to go out? What's the plan for you to go out now? Is there, is there any dates in the book? I had a conversation that just this morning uh, about Australia to start it a, a year from now. Uh, and again, as long as you know we do it in a manner that it's pleasurable, and we want to do some dates, because I I just don't see me uh, doing a hundred show tours anymore. I. I it's not really motivational for me, you know, it's, it's another club sandwich, as we all know, has lost its appeal. You, you, you're, yeah, involved, exactly. you're involved in public housing as well, aren't you? I mean, does, does, the, does politics interest you? Is that somewhere where you might end up going? No, I think it's a thankless job. I think as a philanthropist, you can get a hell of a lot more done. Um, and and I'm, I'm not smart enough to know enough to get into the game, but... I think if you're passionate about something, and in our case, it's hunger and homelessness, that you can be educated on it enough to make some kind of a little ripple. And, and so that's what we've been doing. And, and I feel good about that. John, it's been so great. You should. Yeah, we can't thank you enough. That's been absolutely brilliant, John. Fantastic. It's been a joy. Thank you. Well, and we've only just touched the surface of Bon Jovi. Yeah. <laughs> oh. no, um, this was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Uh, it's not some guy in a newspaper that hasn't a clue about all our pain and suffering that goes no. with the great memories. <laughs> exactly. Of, exactly. You know. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank it you. It really is. Uh, well, that was pretty humbling. Yeah. Actually, I felt really good about that because uh, he made us feel very welcome. Uh, not, it, was, it felt like it was the other way around. You know, normally we welcome our guests. I really felt like we were being... Were we going to be welcomed into John Bon Jovi's world? Yeah, we were. I wonder, it's like he, he knew who we were. Which is more than my wife does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, mine just knows who John Bon Jovi is. <laughs> I, I'm, and I'm thrilled with that. And I hope everyone enjoyed that. That was a really fantastic uh, hour. Yeah, so um, keep those lovely uh, uh, reviews and um, subscribe subscriptions coming. Yes, whatever you have to do to be a podcast a podcast enthusiast these days um, we will see you next week with some more exciting stuff thank you to our producer Ben and uh, and it's good night from him and it's good night from them hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.